Judges chapter 12 this morning as we turn to worship God through the preaching of His Word. Judges chapter 12. Today we have come to the conclusion of the life of Jephthah. The judge who started out so promising, displaying these excellent qualities of leadership, leading Israel to this great victory in battle, but also the one who was careless with his words, the one who tried to negotiate with God, and the one who brought tragedy upon his own household with a needless sacrifice of his only daughter. Well, today we get the conclusion of his story, the conclusion of this major judge here in Judges chapter 12. And so let us now hear God's word. Judges chapter 12, the entire chapter. Brethren, this is the word of God. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed the Zephon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight with the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the people of Gilead and and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said, No, they said to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died, and he was buried in his city in Gilead. After him, Isbon of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons, and he judged Israel seven years. Then Isbon died, and he was buried in Bethlehem. After him, Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon, the Zebulonite, died and and, and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the the Piriathanite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. And he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Piriathanite, I cannot say that, (laughs) died. And he was buried at Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. Amen. Well, this is God's word. Bow with me again in prayer. Our Father, we do ask that you would use your word to glorify your name, that you would use your word to convict us of sin, that you would use your word to lead us to repentance, that you would use your word 
to strengthen our faith, to increase our love for Jesus Christ, to build your church, to usher in your eternal kingdom. We pray that you would do this according to your majesty and power and glory. Through Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, no doubt this morning things are going to seem a little bit anticlimactic as we conclude the story of Jephthah. He's one of those judges where the, the real climax of his life takes place in the middle rather than the end. And what we're seeing in this sense really is kind of what we might say is the epilogue of the story. We came to the climax last week, if you'll remember correctly, where that central drama took place where he sacrificed his own daughter at the end of the battle. And really what we're seeing now is this kind of an afterthought of that. It's like what could be more emphatic, what could be more pressing, what could be more climactic than that? But in this sense, as we think about an epilogue, what, what, is, what is the point of an epilogue? An epilogue is to kind of bring things all into focus. An epilogue is to kind of conclude things so that we can look back and properly evaluate everything. In this case, so that we can look back and evaluate this judge and what effect that he had on the nation of Israel. Looking at it this way, I want to point out to you that as we look at the nation as a whole, at this point in the narrative, it seems as though the nation as a whole is in a good place. It seems like their greatest trouble and their greatest threat is behind them. I mean, we're, we're setting aside for a moment this fact that, you know, you have to sacrifice his own daughter and tragedy came to his family. But even still, that happened with his family. And, and now Israel as a whole had, had just won an astounding victory over an oppressive army. They go from, if you'll remember, leaderless and at the point of despair to a sudden rise of a very capable judge to a rout of their enemies. It seems like things are good. Their greatest trouble apparently has been fixed. And even Jephthah, with all his flaws, he seems to be devoted to the Lord. Yahweh seems to be on their side as well. But even when we look at it this way, it's hard not to come back to that fly that's stuck in that cup of salvation. That crack that appeared in the foundation. Their leader was fearful. He tried to bargain with God. He tried to negotiate. And the end wasn't pretty. He was so focused on the external victory, this menacing army, that he would really stop at nothing to get what he wanted, even at the cost of his only child, as we saw last week. So in this respect, while, while it does appear just to be you know, a blip on the radar, the blip on the radar of this glorious victory, as we continue today, we ought to be anxiously anticipating what this, what's going to happen. What is the fallout that's going to come after Israel's leader did such a foolish and stupid thing in the previous chapter? And of course, in this respect, 
it doesn't take long to see that Jephthah's personal fallout very quickly leads to a corporate fallout as well. So in this respect, I want you to see, although we may be tempted to see Israel's victory as a nation, as them heading in a positive direction, we may be tempted to think that Jephthah's personal failing was really more, nothing more than his failing at home. The reality is, Jephthah's failing at home ends up being a tragic foreshadowing of what's to come in the nation as a whole. Today we see the fallout of his sin and its ramifications for the nation. Just as Jephthah's family is nearly decapitated, Israel as a nation goes down that path. For so goes the leader, so goes the nation. But in all this, what is kind of the message for us today? How does this relate to you and me? What does this teach you and me? Well, kind of the emphasis of what I want to bring out from this text is it something that we've seen again and again. This passage shows us that the victory over Israel's external enemies does nothing to address their internal enemies, indwelling sin and idolatry. And the same is true for you and me as well. We are to see the consequences that come and follow from sin, even when the external circumstances of our life seem to be going well, when those things seem to have been fixed. So often we too, we focus on external enemies, right? What are the things that stress you right now, today? Is it a bill that's due? Is it an assignment that's due tomorrow? Is it a test that's coming up? Is it a coworker that's driving you crazy? Is it a spouse? Is it a family member? What is driving you crazy today? What is stressing you out? So often we tend to think that, okay, our greatest problems are in those things. And so we blame people, we blame finances, we blame circumstances, we blame the government. We blame our parents, we blame our boss, we blame our coworkers, we blame our spouse, as if only if those things were fixed, then we'd finally experience a good life. But the reality is, we have a heart problem, not a circumstance problem. And until we realize this and humble ourselves before the Lord, we'll never truly escape that which is really damaging us and destroying us. We'll never really find rest and peace in the arms of the perfect Savior. We'll never really get excited about the astounding grace of God that He's shown us in Christ. Let's see here today the heart problem of Israel and what it leads to in the nation as a whole. So with this in mind, I've got three points for you today kind of uh, to bring these things out. Three things. (coughs) First thing is this. I kind of already have given this away, but the first thing we see is... (coughs) 
External victory over circumstances cannot fix inward idolatry. External victory of circumstances can't fix inward idolatry. Look with me again at verse 1 here of chapter 12. The men of Ephraim were called to arms. They crossed the Zephon. They said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. Jephthah has just led Israel into this glorious victory over this very serious threat, the Ammonite army. But here, the tribe of Ephraim, all they care about is, we didn't get to participate in the fight. It's kind of like, you know, the, the young, naive soldiers who, who fear that the war is going to end before they see action on the front. It's foolish. It's stupid. But if this sounds familiar to you, it should be, because back in chapter 8, we already saw this with Gideon. Ephraim as well came to him and said, why didn't you call us to go fight with you? What this shows us is that nothing has changed. Ephraim is still Ephraim. They're still doing the same things. Things are no better under Jephthah than they were under Gideon. And in fact, things are actually much worse, as we'll see in a moment. But I just want to, you know, to, to lay this out before you. Can, you notice the hatred in their words? This is the intensity in their voice. I mean, you can like feel the hate here. We don't care that you defeated our enemies. We don't care that you just saved the nation. You didn't call us to join the fight. You didn't call us to share in the victory, to, to receive the glory. And now we're going to burn your house down. I mean, that's just brutal. This is cruel. They don't even waste time with diplomacy here, right? They make it personal right away. Just, just pure hatred. It's important to note as well, they're not just threatening to, to you know, burn down Yephthah's house. Uh, but by this phrase, they're most likely talking about his entire clan. Or really, maybe even the entire tribe itself. That's why it says they, they were called to arms. They have mobilized themselves. They have form, formed lines as battle troops. And, and they are ready to go to war over a slight. Just something that's just trivial. What does this show us about the state of the nation? What does this show us about who Israel's real enemy is? It certainly doesn't appear to be the Ammonites. They seem to be their own worst enemy, don't they? It's the indwelling sin that now is threatening more seriously than even the Ammonites the destruction of the nation. Of course, if we were to break this down and try to pinpoint what's going on here, we must say that Ephraim's behavior represents kind of the epitome of pride. They wanted the preeminence. They felt snubbed, forgotten, unimportant, overlooked. And it makes them furious. What I want us to see in this respect is that you know, so often pride is kind of treated as one of those respectable sins in Christianity, right? In some respect, as long as it's, you know, doesn't get out of control. 
But what, what I want us to see is that pride really and truly is nothing but a symptom of idolatry. It's a symptom of idolatry. Pride is the love of self. Pride is the, the lust for personal glory. Pride is ultimately the worship of self. Pride is setting the agenda by what you think is most important. Pride has self at the center of the universe. Pride is that desperate attempt to to maintain control, to call your own shots. And of course, when you don't get the recognition that you deserve for being in control, for being capable, for being who you really are, You get angry. Pride doesn't look out for the good of others. It doesn't look out for the good of the nation, the good of the family, the good of the church. Pride looks out for the good of me. Pride looks out for number one. Pride is nothing less than idolatry. Because when we are prideful, when we display this this pride, when the pride of the heart kind of uh, cultivates our sense of identity, our, our sense of worth, and ultimately our sense of worship is focused on all the wrong things, as we see with Ephraim here. They identified themselves as the capable warriors that battled for the glory of Israel, when they don't get to participate in that, oh, wow. Everything that they've built themselves up for their own lives and their own self-identity is challenged and they lash out. Brethren, I want you to see here that Ephraim's behavior should be a warning to us. Hopefully, you're not threatening to burn down your neighbor's house, Right? But this serves as a warning. If, if your pride, if your self-love, if your lust for control over your life is not put to death by the Spirit, then you're heading down this very same path. You're headed towards a civil war of sorts as well, and it's only a matter of time before it blows up. So yes, we would think with Israel's greatest external enemy now out of the way, finally things would, you know, be good and they would get along. But all this episode does is show us that the real enemy is alive as ever. Victory over those external enemies in life, a fixing of your circumstances, things that would seemingly bring happiness to you finally, and peace mean absolutely nothing if the real problem, the idolatry of your hearts, isn't dealt with. That's what we see here. So how does this play out? How does Yephthah respond to this? Well, secondly, what do we see? Secondly, we see that failure in private leads to failure in public. Failure in private leads to failure in public. Look again with me uh, at verse 2 down through 4a. Yephthah said to them, 
I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? And Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. If you remember back, um, oh, a month or two ago when Gideon was challenged in the very same way by the very same tribe, he quickly diffused the situation and calmed them down. You know, Proverbs 15.1 says that a soft answer turns away wrath. So you, you would think, after all we've seen with Jephthah, a man who's displayed such marvelous um, 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 wisdom and agility with words, you would think that he would have the wisdom here and the grace and the vocabulary to kind of diffuse the situation here. Well, what do we see instead? On the surface, he appears to be diplomatic. He says in verse 2, I did call you to come and help fight with me, and you didn't show up. The problem is that there's no evidence of this. This is kind of like, you know, when someone fails to tell you something important and you go to them, you're like, I didn't know. And they say something like, oh, you didn't, you didn't get my call? Oh, you didn't get my text? Oh, the email must have been lost in cyberspace. Hmm, that's, that's interesting. No, how often we kind of, some people kind of, you know, Explain things away like that. Like, oh yeah, I contacted you. You you didn't know, you didn't hear, when in reality, they didn't. You see, if if Yetha would, uh, really did call them here, the narrator would have made it clear, I believe. And so I think we are to see here that Yetha's not being honest. There's no evidence that he actually called them. He's trying to diffuse the situation by evading the truth and... That's going to lead to destruction every single time. Furthermore, you get Jephthah kind of saying here, I took my life in my hand. He's, he's kind of beating his chest a little bit. Look what I've done. I risked it all. And I won. Right? I did it my way. Right? You know? I didn't need your help anyway. The implication is, as well, I defeated them all on my own, and, and you keep talking, and I'm going to defeat you the same way. He's being brash. He's being boastful. He's saying, essentially, come at me, bro. Let's go. I, I, I took care of them. I'm going to take care of you. He's displaying the same kind of pride and bravado that Ephraim just illustrated as well. He's no better than they. So yeah, we do see, in some sense, a reply seems to be diplomatic. In fact, if you parallel his reply here with his reply to the Ammonite king that we saw last week in that long dialogue, there's a lot of parallels there. But in reality, this reply stands in sharp contrast to that previous reply. He called on Yahweh to judge between him and the Ammonites before. But here, what does he do? He doesn't do that. He takes matters into his own hands. He gathers his men for war. And he lashes out. 
In fact, we get a real hint, uh, excuse me, we get a hint at his real motivation here in verse 4, the end of verse 4, where we read that the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. Basically, this amounts to maybe what we'd call as a racial slur. Ephraim was degrading Jephthah and his people. He was calling them, they were calling them worthless and purposeless. And what's interesting about this, what's key about this, is that if you remember from three or four weeks ago, this is Jephthah's background. Remember? Remember he was exiled from Israel. Remember he was a fugitive. And so now they're kind of throwing that in his face mocking him, saying, no, you really are who you used to be. And so in this respect, the narrator wants us to see that this is personal. Jephthah is personally offended. And so he's fighting, I believe, out of anger. He's fighting out of personal insult. He's acting out of revenge for wrongs. That he's received, he's believed, uh, wrongs that he perceived that he has received. Well, that was a confusing statement. <laughs> this is what civil war is, isn't it? Petty self-interests where both are in the wrong. So often, like brothers and sisters fighting in the back seat saying, you're on my side. No, you're on my side. That's what civil war is. In fact, in this respect, I think we could see as well, you know what the most infuriating thing is to a prideful and self-righteous person? Another prideful and self-righteous person. Nothing in all the world will fuel sinful hatred than somebody close to you who struggles with the same things that you do. Takes one to know one. That's what's going on here. Well, how does this conclude then, the civil war? Well, we see that in verse 5 through 7. Funny thing here is that Ephraim um, said that Gilead was a fugitive, right? But in verse 5, it's the Gileadites who capture the fords, and literally Ephraim becomes the fugitives. They're separated from their land. Gideon, uh, um, uh, uh, sorry, Gilead is, is manning this river crossing, um, which separates Ephraim from their homeland, and they're, they're basically fugitives. And so when an Ephraimite comes and they tries to get back to their home, they're subjugated to this linguistic test, as it were, this shibboleth and sibboleth test. In case you haven't noticed, this is a familiar motif, isn't it? Speech and smooth talk appear again in this narrative. Judges is a masterful narrative. Here we have Jephthah, the judge with a golden tongue. He smooth talked his way out of exile. He almost won over the Ammonite king with his eloquence. But then he uses his words, making a tragic vow unto the Lord. And now he's going to use that same golden tongue, as it were, to shame and to slaughter his own brothers. 
At the time, uh, the sh sound in shibboleth, the sh, it, it was incorporated into the east uh, much quicker than it was in the west. Literally, the words mean the very same thing. Shibboleth and sibboleth, it just means flowing stream. But the Israelites in the west were not quite able to make that correct sound. You know, I thought here of a great illustration of, you know, holding up a can of a carbonated beverage and saying, what do you call this? Is it soda? Is it Coke? Is it pop? And you can kind of tell where somebody comes from, right? Um, Or you ask somebody to say something like Chicago, you know, Chicago. Or, you know, you say somebody in Boston, you talk about cockies and, and, you know, all the... But it's really more fundamental than this. It's it's more like, you know... uh, like someone who's unable to roll their R's, right? So they can't pronounce some, some words in Spanish or Italian or, or Russian. In that sense, they can't even fake it. And that's what's going on here. They couldn't even fake the p- correct pronunciation here. And so when they tried to say the word, Yephthah and his men knew exactly where they were coming from. And he slaughters them to the tune of 42,000. Just a massive slaughter. 42,000 is more than the, 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 the capable men of war that they had, that tribe had coming out of Egypt. Once again, we have a judge who's bringing brutal Israel-on-Israel Israel violence. Once again, we have a judge acting like a tyrant. Once again, we have a judge who's literally decapitating the nation of Israel. Did you see the irony in this? The one who himself didn't speak correctly to God in making that foolish vow now murders his fellow Israelites for incorrect speech. Talk about a hypocrite. The one who slaughters his own family member because of his own faulty words now slaughters his greater family, his fellow countrymen, because of their faulty words. The one who made a rash vow now lashes out in rash violence. The one who is patient and diplomatic with his enemies now becomes reactive and cruel and heartless with his own people. The one who just seemed to have a little trouble at home now shows he has trouble in public as well. The one who called upon God to judge between him and the Ammonites now takes matters into his own hands and acts as the judge, the jury, and the executioner for his fellow Israelites. This is Yephah disintegrating before our very eyes. And because he's the leader, he's dragging the nation down with him. So goes the judge. So goes the leader. So goes the king, so goes the people. Without the right kind of leader, the people of God have no hope. Brethren, this is what idolatry does. 
This is what it creates and it leads to. When you find your identity and your worth in other things, in what other people think of you, and your ability to control the situation and the circumstances, you lash out when people challenge that. When that identity which you have constructed for yourself begins to crumble. This is what idolatry does. It turns you into a hypocrite. Like Yetha, who's saying that God will judge between me and the Ammonites, but then turns and acts in a completely different manner. Like Yetha, who, who punishes and kills his Israelites for sins that he himself was guilty of. Idolatry turns you into a hypocrite. Idolatry leads as well to fights and quarrels among yourselves. Especially among those who are closest to you. Especially among those who you ought to love greater than anybody else in the world. Those in your family, those in your church, you should display the most kindness, the most grace, the most patience, the most long-suffering towards them than anybody else, but so often. It's those people on the outside we often treat better than those who are in our own home or in our own church. This is what idolatry does. It creates fights and quarreling, biting and devouring. And, and how tragic is it that with all of the attacks of the world from the outside, oftentimes Christians are marked more by their civil war of words. We fight amongst ourselves. We're ready to slaughter one another over trivial matters like how to pronounce a word. These things shouldn't be. Whether it's hypocrisy, whether it's quarreling, whether it's pride, whether it's slander, whether it's self-righteousness, as we saw last week, our words reveal what's in our hearts. Jephthah spoke and revealed what was in his heart in his foolish vow. Ephraim spoke and revealed the pride of his heart. Jephthah again spoke in this shibboleth sibboleth controversy with them speaking as well. And the writer is saying, don't you see? This is all that filth coming out. And the scary thing is, is eventually whatever it is that's in our hearts eventually comes out. It always does. You may think it's private. You may think it's confined just to your own home. But like with Yepha here, it quickly becomes public. This is why one of the qualifications for an elder is that he rules his own household well. If he can't rule at home, he can't rule the people of God. That's what we're seeing with Yetha. He can't rule his home. He doesn't have control over his words, and so the nation itself is put in grave danger. Let's not believe the lie that our sin just affects us. That it just affects those maybe who are closest to us. Because eventually, it affects everyone around you. And oftentimes the consequences that it brings on other people are even greater than the consequences it brings upon you. 
This is a warning, this passage, that we would see and recognize the symptoms of heart idolatry, that we would beware lest we focus so much on the enemy out there that we neglect the enemy in here. This is a warning that we must be on guard lest we too bite and devour and destroy one another with our words as we read from Galatians 5 this morning. This is sin and idolatry on display among the people of God. Well, how does this all conclude then? Clearly, this is kind of a sour note, right? This is, this is kind of a downer. 42,000 dead. Um, is this the end? Do we have any hope? Is this what we're going to walk away with here this morning? Well, with third and finally then, we come to our last point. Third and finally, we see that even in the midst of tragic human sinfulness... God's mercies persist. Even in the midst of tragic human sinfulness, God's mercies persist. In verse 7, we read the end of Jephthah. In contrast to the other judges, he reigns just six very short years. And then he died. And that merciful refrain that we've heard before, that the land had rest, or that Israel had peace, is nowhere to be found here. His war with Ephraim made sure of that. Apparently this was six long, tumultuous, violent years in Israel. And then he died. Probably mercifully he died so that the entire tribe of Ephraim wasn't cut off. At the end of his life, Israel is no better off than before. Once again, once again with this judge, this guy is not the answer. Something else, someone else has to come. But then in verses 8 through 13, we get this kind of quick recap of three other judges. And this closes out the chapter, which then leads into Samson, the next judge in chapter 13. You might be wondering, what, what is the connection to this story? Why are these three judges mentioned so quickly? Why don't we have any details about them? Well, uh, to answer that simply, uh, these judges serve as a foil for Jephthah. They're here as a contrast so that we can properly evaluate his rule, as well as the rule of the next judge to come, Samson. How do they serve as a contrast? Well, just notice that each judge, each one of them, reigns longer than Jephthah. Isbon, seven years. Elon, ten years. Abdon, uh, eight years in verse 12. Each one reigns longer than Jephthah. Each one is marked with nothing of the civil war and tragedy that marked his life and rule. Very mercifully. We ought to see that after him, there seems to be 25 years of relative peace and quiet and prosperity. All of the sons and daughters kind of reveal that things are going well. You don't have lots of sons and daughters in times of war. This is God's mercy. 
Now, don't be mistaken, of course, idolatry still persists with Isbon. He has 30 sons and 30 daughters. Elon has 40 sons and 30 grandsons. This tells us that the pattern of kingly dynasty is still prevalent. You know, rulers taking many wives, many concubines in, in disobedience to God, trying to make a name for themselves, trying to set up a dynasty. These are pagan practices. Again, showing that Israel is no better off than before. But even with this, I want to submit to you that the emphasis falls on the mercy of God. The mercy of God. And specifically, we see this in how Jephthah and Isbon are the only two judges in Israel where their daughters are mentioned by the writer. It's the only two judges the only two men in Israel who the narrator cares to remind us that they had daughters. Jephthah, of course, has one daughter. He tragically sacrifices, while Isbon has 30 and then brings 30 more in. What does this tell us? Well, it underscores the tragic barrenness by Jephthah and the consequence of his vow. He only had one daughter, and he kills her, while this obscure nobody with nothing of importance written about him has 30. That's how bad, how tragic yet the story is. This is the divine evaluation of his reign. His household was cursed. But more than this, I believe it shows us and it points us to the mercy of God. The boundless mercy of God. Even though Jephthah foolishly cut off his line and brought civil war upon his people, God is still blessing his people. If you remember from last week, how did we end last week? I argued that Jephthah's daughter, the one who was sacrificed, is the picture of Jesus Christ. And I argue this because, do you remember how she reacted to the news that her dad was going to kill her on the altar and sacrifice her? She asked for two months of mourning, not to mourn her life, but to mourn her virginity, to mourn her barrenness. She cared more about the fact that she couldn't bear children than she cared about the fact that she was about to die. Why? I argued because she believed the promise of God. She believed Genesis 3.15 that through the offspring of the woman, Satan's head would be crushed. She believed that through the bearing of children, the Messiah would come. And so she mourns that she cannot participate in that promise and that she's cut off from this glorious privilege of the covenant. Well, here we get an allusion to the very same thing. Undoubtedly, the cutting off of Jephthah's daughter signals that Satan won that battle, the war of the serpent against the woman. But here with Isbon's 30 daughters, it's clear that God is still winning the war. Despite sin, despite civil war, despite the setbacks, the sovereign, redemptive plan of God is marching on. And there is no stopping it. 
Isbon here is even from Bethlehem, the tribe of Judah. We saw in chapter 1 of Judges that the rulers ought to come from Judah. And we see, obviously, as well, the same tribe, the same city from which that ultimate woman, Mary, would come and bear the ultimate judge and the ultimate king and the ultimate ruler of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus we are to see in this ending right here that the seed of the woman persists even despite Jephthah attempting to cut it off with the slaughter of his daughter and cut it off with his war against Ephraim. The mercy of God is marching on despite all of this. And brethren, the good news is that the mercy of God is declared to you and me today as well in this very same way. Truth be known, our passage ought to be a bit humbling. We too tend to focus on external enemies and circumstances more than indwelling sin. We too often think that our failings at home are private and won't affect others. We too act as hypocrites. We too respond harshly with anger when our importance or our identity is challenged. We too often quarrel with our words and fight and blame others for our own sin, act like other people really need to fix themselves instead of us fixing ourselves. We too often treat the enemies of God better than even our own families and our own churches. We too struggle with pride and with careless words, with faithless actions. But we too then also need to hear of the boundless, infinite mercy of our God in the Gospel. We, too, need to look and see and place our faith in that seed of the woman. We, too, need to look out and see that ultimate judge, that ultimate ruler, that ultimate leader, the one who not only subdues our enemies out there, but who subdues and conquers our enemies in here as well. We, too, must not be sidetracked with the day of trouble here and now, but we must fix our eyes on that sovereign, redemptive plan of God that is marching on the fact that He is still in control, that He is still accomplishing His will, and He has promised that all things work together for our good and His glory if we are in Christ by faith. It's when we see this, humbled by our sin, broken over it, aware of our constant need of His rule, it's only then. Stop looking at outside circumstances. Fix our eyes upon Christ, on the age to come. It's then where we find rest. It's then where we find peace. As we cast ourselves on the loving arms of our Savior and submit ourselves to His perfect and peaceful rule for our lives. And it's then that we really begin to get excited about the grace of God and we live lives in joyful gratitude for what God has freely given to us by grace and not by merit. Well, may God give us the grace today to see and repent, 
to believe in the promise to look to the seed of the woman to cast ourselves upon the Lord. May God grant what he commands of us. Amen. Let's pray.